Hi, I'm Aaron and welcome to the Hip Hop Hustle podcast, where we explore, well, you guessed it, hip hop. I'll be interviewing the best artists in the game while also taking some time to appreciate some new and classic albums. Make sure you like and subscribe to the show and follow me on Instagram at the underscore hip hop hustle for any upcoming news and guests. Also, don't forget to check out my new Patreon under Hip Hop Hustle that will give you exclusive content and help me keep the show running and getting better. All right, let's get into it. There we go. So welcome to the Hip Hop Hustle podcast. I'm with a legend of hip hop and one of the originators in Tracy Lee. Uh, If you're not aware of Tracy Lee, Tracy, you go back a long journey in terms of your career in hip hop, but you've worked with artists like Biggie is probably the one that everyone still talks about. And I'm sure, you know, at some points you can't even fathom that you were with Biggie. Uh, you've worked with people like Jay-Z. You've worked with people like Kanye West. So literally the legends in the game, you were recently on a hundred rolling 110 deep with DJ K Slay. So you make an appearance there just after Havoc as well from uh, Mob Deep. So if you don't know where he is, he's right after Havoc. So make sure you check it out. But it's a real pleasure for me because I love speaking to people like yourself. You've gone through a, a long journey to get to where you are. Oh, man, pleasure being here. Pleasure being here and um, being able to chop it up. You know, like we before you turned the record button on, we were talking about culture and the cultures around the world. So it's always fantastic to chop it up with people from different cultures about, about hip hop. Well, when you started, did you ever fathom that hip hop would grow to where it is right now? Because it really is the the most listened to genre of music. It's the fastest growing. It really has the biggest impact on society and on culture. Like you see it really in NBA, in every single sporting arena, hip hop is involved. Whenever they've got highlight reels, it's hip hop. So you literally see it. But did could you fathom that growth? Initially, no. I mean... You know, I don't think anybody that was in the inner city, you know, grew up in the inner city off of the culture, inner cities, uh, thought that it would expand uh, beyond your block or even beyond downtown. Of, or, you know, that was uh, really an expansion, getting it from the hood to the, to, the, to the downtown, which was mainstreaming the city. But then to imagine it going from, you know, your center cities and your inner cities uh, to other states, you know, outside of the East Coast, down South, out West, Midwest, in the United States, that is, then eventually expanding, you know, to Canada and overseas and all that. Like, that was far beyond the peripheral, you know what I mean? Um, but, you know, um, as we alluded to in our conversation before we, we cut the record button on, the more money got involved, then you knew that there was the potential for this for this to be an uprising, if you will, you know what I mean? Like for it to expand uh, to other nations of the cultures uh, to, to really, you know, get a, get a bit of a taste of, you know, what we had been experiencing since, you know, since the seventies. So, yeah. When, when did you say that, like the, the cash injection come through? Like, did, did you have a feeling or was there like a period of time where you're like, I can see it starting to move? Oh yeah. Uh, Run DMC. Run DMC were, were really, the, the 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 in the forefront with regards to branding, uh, with the Adidas, uh, the cross sector of, of Adidas and the Adidas line, I believe they got the 
I'm not going to say the first endorsement deal. That's the first endorsement deal that I knew about. And that was, you know, we're talking early to mid eighties. Um, from that point, you kind of saw where this thing could go. And then, you know, them, you know, within the, you know, that was around the time of the video age MTV. And you saw them, you know, getting play on MTV as opposed to Ralph McDaniels in New York city, you know, outside of that particular city and even region. So you saw the potential then. And I think from there is, is, you know, but then when we get into a into the nineties, that's when you had the, the real boom. Uh, but, but I think run DMC were in the forefront with regards to taking this genre and taking this culture global. Yeah, obviously with the superstars, people still wear the superstars. It was funny, though. there was a big trend, I reckon, probably two to three years ago, maybe even five years ago, of people wearing the superstars again. And I was like, oh, do you know, like, the history of the sneaker? And they were like, no. Yeah. But yeah. It's, so, it's so funny that a shoe from the 80s from Run DMC is in the, you know, 2010s and still making a comeback. So you still see it, even if people are not aware of it, that, hip hop has had that you know long line of of influence even to people who aren't aware of you know hip hop or not fans yes and actually it was the shell top adidas the superstars or, or the or the converse all stars i think that's what you were alluding to that was more of the 70s shoe that was more dr j which is which is really in the beginning stages of the culture but we didn't identify with it at that particular time but as we look back I mean, people like Julia Serving and, 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 you know, people that, that had an influence with regards to the way the inner city dressed and looked and walked and talked and style. That's all a part of the culture. It just wasn't like commercially labeled hip hop yet. But when we start talking about Run DMC and the Shell Top of Theater, you, now we're, we're, the machine is fully running now. So you, you, you hit it on the head and then we, you still have that same sneaker 30 years later, still prominent, still people, you know what I mean, gravitating toward it like it's a brand new thing where, like you said, it really cultivated from the early to mid-80s. And where were you at that point? So Run DMC hits, you know, you start to feel it. Where were you at with your music journey? How did that play into your psyche and in terms of what you were trying to do? I was in Philly. Um, I grew up in Philadelphia. Uh, so right down the street, we're like the cousins of New York City. Um, more so like the little brother back then. They always tried to treat us like that. You know what I'm saying? Um, but I was in Philly at the time. And with regards to my career, uh, that was, you know, me in the humble beginnings. That was me. You know, I was actually a part of a crew uh, called the MC5. Now, you know, it's an old school you know, rap group, when you start talking about these kind of names, like the MC5, and then I was in a group called the Jazzy Three, and my name was MC Lee at the time. Uh, but these were the beginnings and the, 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 the humble beginnings of my career, really me trying to find an identity. Um, I, and at that particular time, I was, you know, uh, actively, you know, seeking record deals, shopping demos, I know that's foreign to a lot of, you know, you know, people now, but that's when we used to put cassette tapes in the mail and ship them off to record companies with the hopes that they would, you know, take it out and play it and say, hey, this sounds dope. You know, we want to sign you to a record deal. Uh, uh, but, you know, we went through that whole process in the mid 80s uh, around the time when, you know, Run DMC and my and I guess one of my biggest influences is LL Cool J. 
And, um, you know, I, w- I was a super fan of LL Cool J. And so, you know, I can admit there were a lot of times when I would write and a lot of times that I would do music and it, and it really mimicked him. You know what I'm saying? Because, um, again, we're, we're trying to develop our own style. And but but, you know, when you go through that whole process, you always gravitate towards those that influence you the most. And so at first it was LL, you know, and then a couple of years later, Rakim and, and, and G-Rap and, and, and Chuck D and, and uh, KRS-One and Kane came along and, and ushered in a whole new sound and a whole new wave and a whole new uh, way of rhyming. Um, and so, you know, I gravitated towards them. Uh, and even before LL, there was cats like Melly Mel and Grandmaster Kaz and, you know, part of the Pillars and Kumo D you know, that I studied as well. And then, you know, you get into like after that phase is when, you know, I started to cultivate my own. Like I started to, I took those elements and then I, then I finally figured out who Tracy Lee was, was going to become. You know what I'm saying? I was still a fan of the music. I still listened to, you know, when we get into the nineties, I still listened to Red Man. I still listened to uh, 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 Wu-Tang. I still listened. I, I I listened to Tretch at the time, uh, uh, Naughty by Nature. I was I was a big fan of, you know, then comes Nas and then here comes, you know, Big and then, you know, and, and, and Outkast and all of these kinds of groups. So I'm still a fan, but these those guys are more of my peers. But the ones that I talked about before, like I said, the, the LLs and the and the and the uh Rakims and the G Raps and the and the Karis ones and the Chuck D's and the Big Daddy Kane's and and the Ice Cubes. I was I was a huge fan of Ice Cube and Scarface as well. Uh those are the guys that I listened to and I was like, yeah, I, I like what they're doing, I like the way they do it, and they all did it differently, you know, and I kind of adopted, took took all of that, made a big gumbo, and then put Trey Lee in it. <laughs> and then now we have, you know, me coming into my own, you know, probably like you know, at the, at the latter part of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. It's so funny because some artists say that they didn't really, they weren't influenced by other artists, but I really find it's that not, that's not true. Believe. Yeah, that, that's not true. That's not I true. agree with you because if you like the music, you're going to listen to the music. And even if it's subconsciously, it filters through to what you're trying to do because there's a, an, a, an artist or there's someone there's like, you know, my hero, that's the person I want to try and emulate. Even if I put in my own flavor, I want to try and emulate them. So the way they do it blends through. And that is going to maybe later in your career, like you said, once you find who you are, that's when you start innovating from your own sound. But at the beginning, there's no way. Cause how, like, where do you start? You get it from somewhere. Everybody, there's nothing new under the sun. Everybody gets something, whatever invention, whatever creation, whatever you get it, you get the inspiration from somewhere. There's no way that you are in this music and you weren't inspired by somebody before. you. No way. But I mean, you hear all the greats, all the greats and everybody who's been doing it for a long time. They're always referencing their idols. They're always referencing the people that they studied, the people that they were like, I learned my craft from X, Y, Z. Right. Regardless of who it is, because if you didn't, you don't eventually, like at some point you have a limitation, you put a limit on yourself. But when you study, you learn. I'll take it even a step further. You wouldn't even have an interest in this if you weren't influenced by somebody else. You had to gravitate towards it through something or someone, more more or less someone. 
You know what I'm saying? So there's no way. You wouldn't even have an interest in what you do unless you heard somebody do it and say, hey, I like that. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. Even if it's like beat, even if it's, you know, composition, like whatever the sound is, like there's there's just, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. That's like, it's like when, if I listen to a podcast and I'm like, no, I invented my own style of podcast. There's no way. Like no <laughs> you heard somebody do a podcast say, Hey man, I think I like that. I like, you know what I'm saying? And then it goes from there. You know? Yeah. And then I'm like, Oh, this is what I would do. This is what I wouldn't do. These are all the things. And then the more you realize is the more flexibility that you actually have is like, but it's, it's time. It's just hours spent studying and the cool thing as well, like you can definitely hear the difference in terms of hip hop style between the eighties and the nineties. Like there is almost like this Dr. Zeusy style of like delivery in the eighties and then it hits the nineties and it, the grime is switched on. And there's mm-hmm. just like this. <clears throat> and yep. it's so interesting to me that that switch happened almost so quickly that it was just like from one to the next. Well, it, you know what? There was a bridge. And I would say the bridge was, uh, we're gonna we're gonna call we're gonna say the the the, the Zulu Nation's Jungle Brothers movement. We're gonna we're gonna call Tribe to the front. We're gonna call De La Soul. We're gonna call you know Queen Latifah, Moni Love. That was the bridge in between that '80s. You know, once we're getting out of the fight, the power. Once we're getting out of you know, like I said, the public enemies and and all of that kind of stuff, and those and those people that I named, the G-Raps, the KRS, and all that. There was that bridge before we get to the, mm, you know, what I'm saying. And I think, you know, that type of movement, that Tribe Called Quest movement, that 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 Jungle Brothers Tribe Called Quest movement held it down for a, a, a good three years. I would say from like '88 to about '91, and then here comes you know, uh, uh, Naughty by Nature, Tretch, here comes Onyx, here come, and then now you start, to, then here comes, you know, the West Coast Cat, Snoop, and, and Dre, and, 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 and Death Row, and all, and then, you know, here comes Nas, and now you get into that Wu-Tang, now you get into that 90s, uh, boom bap, you know what I mean? But I think, you know, that tribe movement was strong, was strong, like from 89 to about 91, that, that, that was the bridge. That was the what do you think it was about tribe that kind hit in the right way? Because like I we reviewed Midnight Marauders on this podcast, and I for me personally, because I didn't grow up with it, because it's such a foreign sound. Like I was born in '94. So uh-huh. that like those albums came out before I was alive. So for me to listen to it in 2020 was like it's such a big jump to go back. And so it didn't hit me in the right way. And for me personally, there are songs I can appreciate, but there's no like connection. There's no love. It it didn't hit you because you wasn't there. So, so for you, like obviously growing up in that period of time, what was it that made it so significant? They came with something different at the time. Like I said, when, when we get into the the mid to late eighties, when you start talking about the Rockem, the G Raps, I always got to mention this class because this th- this particular class shifted the culture. Because we're getting out of Run DMC, we're getting out of LL, and now we're getting into Rockem, G Rap, KRS One, Chuck D, uh, Big Daddy Kane. They bring a certain vibrato. They bring a certain uh, uh, military 
uh, especially with, 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 with public enemy. And at the, and that was a, a nice stronghold from about 87 to 89, where you're talking about, you know, black people in America, you know, learning things that they, especially people in my, in my demographic, you're talking about the young college student, you're talking about the, uh, the, the older teenager that are, that are figuring some things out historically about, you know, the, the plight of black people in America. And so Chuck D is teaching us these things. Uh, through his music. And so we're going through this transition coming from out of knowledge of self, which is what Rakim and KRS-One are teaching us. Um, you know, and, and that's, you know, when you talk about from 86 to about 89, that was the movement. And so when you get Tribe interjected in it, Tribe just took a, a, a just a detour to the left. It was still on, you know, with the sounds, with some of the sounds, that is. They it was still tribal. It was still very pro-black, black, pro-black pro American um, at the particular time. But was, we, now we're talking about pan-Africanism. Now we're talking about taking this thing a little, little more globally. But then they also interject the jazz field. That was the element that, that, that kind of separated that whole Jungle Brothers movement from everybody else. Like when we start talking about Tribe, and like I said, and Queen Latifah and the Jungle Brothers, the Moni Love, and De La Soul, they brought a bit of a jazz element. They brought a, 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 just a different sound to the culture. And I think because it was different, but it was still dope, you know, at the particular time, and still dope, you know, at least in my opinion, you know, Tribe's albums, especially those first three albums, stand the test of time. Um, those sounds hold up. And again, it was it was different, and 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 but still dope at the same time. That 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 kept uh, you know, uh, or at least not only separated them, but l gave us a solid foundation of what we can expect. You know, not only for them, but people started emulating that sound once they started you know having a foothold and a stronghold in, in the industry and in the culture. Yeah, I think that that is where it, it was almost like the the start of the revolution in a way like it was a start of the going there's no limit to where you can take this it was yes. like we're gonna take that little pit like the fork in the road but then you can create your own and that's where you see all the different styles come through like the because everyone talks about the 90s as the golden era of hip-hop that's mm -hmm. like where you see the youth of hip hop really come together and really go for it. And just classic album after classic album. And it's just impossible. Like you listed a bunch of them. We go from Wu-Tang, Nas, Biggie, Tupac. You've got, you know, Snoop Dogg. It, it, like you've just got all these. And Lauren Hill is in the 90s. You've got Big Pun. You've got Big L in there as well. And literally Dr. Dre is doing his thing. It's it's. Like it, it is just filled to the brims with classic album. And it is literally at that point where it's just me trying to up you and up you and up you and up you. And it feels like the legacy of tribe is a, a portion of starting that journey. Yes, absolutely. They were definitely in the forefront of starting that journey. Absolutely. And so what, when it comes to, to your journey, it's now the nineties. So you can start to see the evolution. How are you starting to change your sound? You know, you had you know, the crews where you were the, 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 the five MCs or the MC5. How did you change what you were doing? Um, it was still, you know, honing the craft. It was still, 
you know, keeping an ear to the street, still keeping an ear to what was going on out there. But again, like when you start getting into to the later part of the 80s, early 90s, now we're starting to evolve and know who Tracy Lee and what Tracy Lee is all about. So uh, me and a, and a couple partners of mine, my man Kaus on top and my man Kwame Anthony, um, DJ Emergency, we started a label. I went to Howard University in Washington, D.C. And so while we were in college, we started a label called Funky Hip Records. And that's when I put out my first uh, uh, recording, if you will, but it was done independently. Um, uh, we, we put the record in record pools. It was a maxi single called Let Me Hear You Say Yeah, and it did relatively well. And I think that was really the jumpstart for the industry to start to notice who Tracy Lee is. But I still wasn't Tracy Lee at the time. At the time, I, my name was L Rock. And so, you know, with that, along with me uh, 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 partnering up and, 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 and now, you know, they're my brothers now, um, uh, partnering up with another crew that went to Howard University called One Step Beyond, uh, we formed a organization called Power Move. And with Power Move, what we were able to do is we were able to do parties, shows, you know, sell T-shirts and all that and create an environment and culture in, at Howard uh, while funding, you know, our, our own situation with regards to studio time and creating demos to be it now that we have the attention of the industry to start using our connects to putting our music out there so that the industry can now see, okay, these are some people that we might want to pay attention to and eventually sign. Uh, so we would bring acts down to perform. Um, you know, uh, we would, we would do like anything that was affiliated with culture, like, um, uh, doing movie premieres. We did, uh, uh, who's the man, uh, at our campus, uh, we had the likes of Old Dirty Bastard and 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 the Roots and um, uh, just a plethora of acts come down and perform at, at, at an event that we used to do on Saturday nights. Um, and so from there, doing that, getting the music out there, people started to notice. And then eventually that leads us to, and then we also had connections at Howard University as well, like Derek D. Angeletti who eventually, I mean, if people don't know who Derek D. Angeletti is, he's the cat uh, that produced the Benjamins. He's the cat that produced where I'm from for Jay-Z. He was a part of the Hitmen. Uh, and the Hitmen are, you know, the producers up under, you know, Puff, uh, Sean Puffy Combs at Bad Boy. Uh, so any and everything that came out of Bad Boy, it was the Hitmen. And D-Dot was in the forefront of that. And so me and Dot developed a relationship. And he's, you know, to this day, my mentor. Uh, he also had a big hand in, you know, making sure that people heard my music in the industry. And eventually uh, he got my my demo tape, you know what I'm saying, to this cat named Mark Pitts. And Mark Pitts also went to Howard as well. And he managed big and he was an understudy of Puff. And so once Mark got his deal with Universal, um, I was, you know, if I wasn't the first act, I was one of the first acts that he signed. And so that's how I eventually got my deal. But it, but it was a grind. You know, it, it started from us doing our own independent thing uh, to us, um, you know, doing uh, uh, things to draw attention to what we were doing musically, like doing events. And then finally, you know, getting that, that opportunity uh, from, you know, the grind and from creating the things that we created in the studio to get it to Mark and him, you know, finally putting a stamp on it and me getting the deal with Boston Universal in, in uh, April of 96. Literally everyone I speak to says this. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Because Facts. the more 
the interviews that I have, the more everyone's like, I met this person and they helped me in my journey. And it was yep. my relationship with them that actually solidified what I did from that point forward. It's very rare for it to be like, I just dropped a mixtape and they listened to it and then I get signed. Just doesn't happen that way. That, 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 yeah, that's rare. I mean, you know, you may once in a blue moon hear that story, but for most of us, oh, it, 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 it's a grind. I mean, it ain't just, you know, over like a year. It's several years. And in my case, from the time I started, which is, you know, early 80s to 1996, you're talking about like 15 years. Well, the other thing that I wanted to ask about was how much money did it cost at that time to start your own label, to start releasing your own music? Because now it's it's open. Everyone talks about, you know, studio time is expensive, but I'm interested in the difference between what it costs now versus what it costs in that period of time, especially as an independent artist. Um, you know, there were ways to cut corners like relationships going back to relationships but on average you're talking about like 30 35 dollars an hour and so because you know that can add up let's just say you know and you got to remember we're kids and when i say kids you're talking about teenagers early 20s so you know the budget is very very small you know what i mean unless you know you just had it like that but most of us didn't so you start talking about 30 to 35 dollars an hour for studio time you can't really waste time. So a lot of us used to do things in one take. You know what I'm saying? There was no, you know, let's spend five, six, seven hours in the studio because that could get costly. I mean, you do the math. You know what I mean? You're you don't have about the technology either. So like- And you don't have the technology. Like, it's not like I can do a take and then I've got it saved and then I can edit it and like put- nah, the- That's why you had to do it in one take. That's why you had, and it had to be perfect. Because there was no, oh, no, punch me in right here. Oh, no, because you didn't have that kind of time or money to be able to do that. You know what I'm saying? So I used to now, you know, I, because I don't have to, um, I, you know, I, I take my time with it. But back then, I used to do it in one take, one take down. You know what I'm saying? And I was known for that because I knew we had expenses here. And then not, that's not including the mix now. We just talking about the recording session. You know what I'm saying? So, um so yeah, it, it it could definitely get caught. And then if you want it really on a, on a, on a professional side of things, then you got to get it mastered. See, we didn't do that. Once we got it mixed, we put it on tape. We didn't care if it sounded ashy or not. You know what I'm saying? But now I know better. Like you know, the better the quality, and I'm glad people can hear through the ash the talent. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but there's no way, knowing what I know now, that I would you know, make a presentation like that. You know what I mean? Like it definitely has to be of, 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 of a certain quality to be able to compete with what, you know, these executives or these people that are, had the ability to sign you are used to listening to, you know what I'm saying? So, um, but yeah, it, it, it costly back then. Well, it's, I mean, these days to get a microphone and to get something to sound good is actually not as difficult as it was because, you know, it's, it's way more marketable. It's so, you know, like my first microphone for the podcast cost me 150 bucks Mm. to make it sound a lot better. You know what I mean? So it's like the, the entry level now is so much easier. Obviously if you want to get pro grade and you want to get professional mics, it costs you thousands of dollars. You got to front a lot of money, but to get into it, like these days, it's a lot easier. You know, you got iPhones, you've got, I can record it literally in my, in my bedroom 
versus you know in that in the 90s you didn't have the accessibility to to the technology and you had uh floppy disks as well you had to save it on yeah Yeah. so so you didn't have like like you know we're recording this straight onto my laptop or you straight onto iCloud or wherever you want to record it so it's not the same like there are just different challenges that I feel like for for people that are younger than I am like if you if you were born after 2000 everything that we're saying will feel completely foreign like i only used floppy disks for a few years at school that was it yeah absolutely and then so you get signed you're 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 on a label how do you get a relationship with biggie because i i mean i'm sure lots of people ask you this and and how you get a track with biggie but how, what is that journey like um, actually, that was kind of easy for me because the guy that I signed to, Mark Pitts, was actually Biggie's manager at the time. You know what I'm saying? And so it just made sense, not only from a, you know, from a from a perspective of, oh, I, I got my signed artist and I got big, I got to get them together. But then it also, at least for Mark, you know, from a financial perspective, it's like, you know, it just makes sense that I get big on my artist record so that our label can you know, uh, uh, achieve what we're trying to achieve. So, um, you know, I'm thankful and grateful, you know, every day and all the time that I would land it in that situation where it was that easy to be able to create a relationship with the late great. You know what I mean? And how was that? How was it? Did you record together? Like, how was that relationship and how was the creative journey? Oh, man, it, it was beautiful, man. I mean, that particular song that we did, Keep Your Hands High, we, we spent time in the studio about eight, about eight hours in the studio. Um, and, you know, it, it wasn't just going to the studio and record the, the record. It was, you know, literally a bonding moment. We had a chance to talk about any and everything, you know what I'm saying, in the process of being creative. Um, but then, you know, to see his process during the time was mind-blowing because he didn't use a pen or a pad. He, you know, we would have conversations and then you just see him black out in the middle of the conversation, just start doing this, you know, and then he'll come back in and talk, da da da, and he'll back out, but sitting in the chair the whole time. And then he'll start doing this. And then, then after a while, I'm looking, I'm like, yo, what are you doing? And he said, yo, um, chill, chill. And then the last time he said, okay, I'm ready. This is like seven, eight hours later. And I was like, ready to do what? He was like, I'm ready to get in the booth. I said, where's your pen and your pad? He's like, nah, I can't, I can't write it down. It confuses me. And I didn't understand what that meant. And eventually I did. And that's because. He didn't write it down because Big had a style where he said more with less. He was very, very, very the most efficient MC that I know with regards to word selection, syllable selection, and where to place them inside of a inside of a, a track. And then, you know, doing that in his head because of the way he wrote, it was easier for him to write it in his head and then transfer it to the mic as opposed to writing in his head and then writing it down and then transferring it to the mic because you can't get the inflections that you need by trying to read it off of a paper. And so again, I didn't understand that then, but I understood it now. It's like eliminate the middleman. Just while you're writing, learn it. You know what I'm saying? Repetitive, say it over and over and over and over and over again. And then by the time you're ready to get in, on, you know, on the mic, it's easier for you to transfer from here to there. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, it, it was it was definitely an eye-opening experience and probably the single most uh, 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 impactful experience 
that I had as a signed artist at the time. Well, when you're telling me this, I find it unbelievable that he didn't write his own lyrics down because I, for me, it's hard enough to remember a question that I want to ask. And then I'm like, oh my God, I forgot what I was going to ask, let alone eight hours in the booth, having a conversation and still in the back of your mind, having, you know, a a rhyme scheme together. And his rhyme schemes are so, so impressive. And, and I think what you touch on is actually, uh, something that artists have touched on before, but remembering and learning your bars off by heart is very different to reading them and delivering them because you can add feeling if you're not reading because it's just coming and you can add inflections. And like for, for anyone, if you want to remember a song, like just remember lyrics to a song and you can start playing with, the way you deliver it, the speed, and then you can start to understand that. Like, I'm not a rapper, but I... Oh, you hit it on the head. You hit it right on the head. But I remembered Big Pun uh, Twins, and I just remembered. And so just so I could just play around in my own time and start to understand what you could do. And so it just shows you that you can play with flow that the once you have it off by heart, you can do a bunch of different things. You can do a slow part, a fast part. And and that is the essence to the, to the true artist in a way. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And the, the thing that you were doing in the camera for, for the audio version of this, he was like turning in a circle. Like he was just like slowly going around in a circle. It's like almost he's getting the groove on and then he's, he's coming through. But were you writing, while you were with him. So you were writing things down and he was just going in. Yep. We were, we were both talking and writing at the same time. It's just that he was writing up here and I was writing like this. So it was like, you know, the because the beats playing in the background. And so, you know, his blackout was this. Mine's was, ah, (laughs) and I'm still listening to the beat. I'm not really rocking with it like this at the time. Cause I had heard the beat, you know, before I got in there too. So I kind of had a rhythm of what, you know, how I wanted the bounce to go. But with it being in the background, it still provided a great backdrop for me to be able to, you know, kind of as I'm talking and as we're doing other stuff to understand what's happening. And then, boom, once we had the, we had a conversation about the concept, once we had that, you know, it was off and running from there. And obviously you guys go back and forth on the track. It's not just his verse, your verse done. You go back and forth for, for multiple verses. When you heard him, did it influence what you did? Mm, not until we got to the last, the, the, the la- my last eight bars, because we were in such a pocket and such a groove. I felt like my last eight bars wasn't intact, you know, no intact with what we were doing. So, and then especially, you know, also because that his last 16 was so bananas is like what I had didn't complement what he had just said. So that's when I had to kind of go back and do my last eight over again after I heard that, after I heard his last 16. Because everything else, my his eight, my 16, his eight, and then my eight, and then his 16 were all in pocket. And then it was that last eight that I, I just didn't feel like it fit. You know what I'm saying? So that that's when I had to go ahead and do that one over. And how did you feel after the session? Like the session is done. Like oh, we got one. I, that's what I thought. We got one. I knew it was. I knew it was piping hot. You know what I'm saying? Like I knew. I knew it from the time he started off. I said, "Oh yeah, 
oh yeah, this is this is gonna be a monster. You know what I'm saying? Like there was no doubt in my mind. You know, number one because it's big, and I knew that you know just because it's big, no matter what he said, just because it's big, people. But you knew what big was gonna do was gonna be incredible. But because it's big, I was like, yo, people are gonna listen. But I was like, okay, and that's all. That's all I need. That's all we need. Just if because you listen, it's a wrap. We'll take it from here. That's how I felt. You know what I'm saying? And how did you ride ride that wave? Like, you know, that is a moment in in like it's like a dream moment because Biggie is without saying anything else, everyone knows who he is, what he is, what he stands for, the the skill set that he came through. But what did that do to your career and what did that do to your kind of you know mentality moving forward? Um, it was it was a gift and a curse, honestly. It was I knew we had something, but then there were there were other other factors that I didn't consider that came in the fold. Like, you know, there were some people that were kind of envious that I had a, a record with Big because they hadn't had a record with Big, you know, in my mind. At least that's the energy that they came off with. There was the whole uh, issue of trying to get the record cleared and being able to, you know, advertise that Big was on the record because if you look at many faces, the album, you don't see Big's name anywhere mentioned. That's because we weren't given rights to advertise, market, and promote that Big was on the record. Um, so why was that? I mean, that that's something you would have to ask the higher-ups. You would have to ask the people, the good people over at, at Bad Boy why we couldn't get clearance. You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, Do you have a perspective? Like, do you, if you put their hats on, do you have a, you know, a theory? The only, the only thing that I can come up with is that he was dropped because me and him dropped the same day. And the only theory that I can come up with is that he was dropping, you know, around the same time. But then I'm also thinking, but why, how could I, as a lesser known artist, affect the sales of the late, great, notorious B.I.G.? So, you know, even that rationale sounds, you know, kind of shaky to me. So I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't well, know. you know, if, uh, if Pete Diddy wants to come on the show and, and let us know, I'd be more than happy to speak to, to Pete Diddy and ask, but yeah, it's, it's such a strange part of hip hop is licensing and clearing. And it's like, you don't really understand how important it is. It's, it's, it's subjective. Like you can, you can, people can clear what they want to clear. If you as the owner of the material, if you as the owner of the artist, you want to clear the thing that you own, you can do that. You could do it for a million dollars or you could do it for absolutely free, but the, the discretion is up to the owner. And so depending, and so it really boils down to the relationship. It depends on the relationship. You can clear whatever you want. There is no, you know, uh, uh, there aren't parameters. There isn't a guideline. There isn't a, a a a skeleton that shows you. Oh, you're supposed to get this, this, and this before you can clear a record or clear an artist. Anybody that has ownership of the thing can clear it when, how, and where they want. And do you? Because I think I read that you did a law degree. Like you, you have. Uh, you're you're well educated. Like you you went as you said you went to Howard. You've got your law degree. I think you're you're the first rapper to have Esquire uh, yes. behind in front of you. I think it's behind your name, or is it in front of behind, me? Yeah, behind, behind your yeah. name. Um, so you know, how did that play 
in between? Because obviously, you know, we're now talking about large commercial deals. You're seeing a lot of money flow through hip hop. Did that give you an understanding of the way contracts are being written up, the implication of, you know, if I sign this, this happens, you know, should I be doing X, Y, Z? How did that play into everything that you're doing? Um, I, it didn't really hit me until after I lost my deal in 2001, after I got dropped and I had to figure out what my next step would be. And I just remember, uh, you know, me not really being satisfied with the representation that I had. Now that's my fault because I'm the one that, you know, sought that particular attorney out. Uh, but then my ignorance is that I sought out a corporate attorney as opposed to an entertainment attorney. And so, you know, even though we signed a deal, um, you know, it would have been a lot better if I'd had an entertainment attorney. Uh, just for my comfort level, understanding and knowing that this person has a full uh, awareness of these particular types of contracts. But then also, you know, this particular attorney, once he got his, his split from the negotiation, once we signed, he got his cut. I never heard from him again. You know what I'm saying? And so, you know, there were matters that came up. It's like, you know, where's my attorney? You know what I'm saying? So I had to go find another attorney. You know what I mean? Um, but but what I wanted to do, you know, once I got dropped and I thought about that is that I want to put myself in a position where I can help others, you know, much better than the way I was helped. You know what I'm saying? And providing the kind of information and insight that I wish that I had. So that was the motivation. And then also, you know, from a branding perspective, you know, now we're talking about me being an MC and an attorney. Uh, you know, I don't think that's ever been done. You know what I'm saying? From a, from a cat that, you know, was a major label artist. Uh, so we can kind of get into some doors that we couldn't get into, you know, just as an MC. So that was the other part of the motivation, you know, but I didn't discover that until later. Uh, but the main reason was to be able to help others in a way that I didn't get that assistance. So can you practice? Cause I did a law degree as well. So I did yes. a law degree, but I didn't, I decided not to become a lawyer. I was just like, no, I no interest in that. No, I mean, I'm a licensed attorney. I've been a licensed attorney for the last 13, 14 years, 14 years. So yes, I'm able to practice. That's, that's so cool because, yeah, I think you're probably right that there aren't, if there are, there's not someone who has the the history that you have that is right. an attorney and an artist because realistically, they don't really mix hip-hop and lawyers. Like in a weird way, hip-hop is anti-law and like it's all about, you know, freedom and, and it, that plays into the Black Rights Movement. And, and it plays into all these social areas that we're hitting. And we saw, you know, the a big jump in 2020. But the thing that, that we were always saying in on this podcast when we were reviewing albums is that the very thing that we were talking about in 2020 and 2021, we would, that was being discussed in the 90s. That was being discussed in the 80s. And the upsetting thing is that it feels like not much has changed. Yep. Yep. And, that, and that's the fact, like, because before that, it was going on in the 60s. You know, that that was, a, 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 you know, when you talk to Chuck D and people like that, they'll tell you, like, and that's the reason why they went so hard at that particular time, because it's like I saw this before. 
I've seen this story before and history continues to repeat itself. Uh, but as far as like, you know, hip hop and, you know, the whole, you know, incorporating the legal aspect, um, you know, my thing is once you get into, now that the culture is in a space where you're dealing with billions of dollars, you better have a working knowledge from a legal perspective of what's going on, even with certain movements that you have. Even now, you know, back then, you know, you take it back to the beginnings of hip hop, you didn't have sample issues. You know, people just used samples and that was it because people didn't believe that this could be a thing. But now that they see that it generates, you know, uh, huge amounts of revenue, you know, now you start getting, you know, lawyers involved because now the original owners of the work want their cut. So, you know, the way that the culture has evolved it left no choice but to interject or inject, you know what I'm saying? The legal aspect, you know what I'm saying? So. Well, I, I, yeah. See, I think sampling to me is so it's, it's convoluted because I can understand both sides. Cause I'm like, I want the best. I don't, I don't understand it. I don't understand. See, that's the thing. And see, I'm always pro artist. So again, you waited till the bag came before you decided to make some noise. And that's what they still do now. Like, you know, you could get away with using a sample now until it starts making some money. Once it starts making some money, then here they come, you know? But, I mean, that's the thing. You don't sue people with no money. That's lawyer 101. Even I, I know of that. Course not. That's, of course that's, not. Of I mean, course not. so that makes sense. But from my perspective, it's like I want the best hip-hop that can be, and that comes with sampling. But at the yes. same time, I want the people who made the original song who may not have gotten the accolades that they deserve. Like I'm looking at people in the 60s, like musicians who are underground. I want them to be rewarded for being able to influence music so far down the line. I agree I just, with that too. The thing that I don't like is when you sample a hit and, and you're just trying to make it like it's copying a hit and trying to make another hit off the back of a hit. Like the true art of sampling to me is taking a sound that very rarely is heard or a sound that people have never heard before. You find, you know, this underground kind of song from a different genre, you chop it up in the right way and you layer it with a hip hop track. That to me is the true art. Well, okay. If we take it back to the beginning, I just had a discussion with somebody about this yesterday. You take it back to the beginning of when you first heard the first commercial hit from a hip hop record, that was a clear sample from a hit. And we're talking about Rapper's Delight, which came from Chic, Good Times. But nobody said anything. Well, now Rogers eventually did, but even back then, not even eventually, he said something back then. But it never discouraged the listener and, 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 the, and, the, and the culture and the genre from loving that record, you know what I'm saying? And then even after that, all of the early like records that you hear in, in, in this culture and in this genre have been because the music was created off of the break. It wasn't, we didn't have beat machines to sample, you know, uh, 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 the ability to chop samples and, and cut them and splice them and be creative back then because we weren't working with those kinds of machines. It was, everything was off the turntable. So you would just find that groove. Now I do agree with you. You know, the key is to find that groove, because even back then you find that groove that nobody found and but you knew where it came from. But as long as you were the originator of finding that groove, 
then that's what made you stand out amongst the rest. But it didn't, it wasn't predicated on whether it was popular now. It was predicated on whether you got to it first. You see what I'm saying? So so as time go ahead. I feel like it's it's about not like if I can clearly hear a large part of the song and I'm like, I know where this comes from. I know that song. It feels like a hack to me in a weird way, like especially now because we have so much access to music and there's the ease of doing all the things that you're talking about in terms of chopping up samples of splicing of putting them in different places. You've got the beat machines. You've got see, see now is different. Now, now is, now is, I don't mean to cut you off, but you're, you're right. Now is much different. That's why I had to take you back. Cause it's hard. It's hard to wrap your brain around it because you weren't there. But when I take you back and you don't have that, then now a person like me that sees it from the beginning up until now can see how I can make an argument for both sides. Cause you're right. You do have the advantage of being able to now, you don't have to do that anymore. You can take that sample, chop it, splice it, blah, 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 and create your own situation. But the essence of the culture wasn't built on that. The essence of the culture, again, was founded from you finding that break. That's why people were so back then were so protective about their records. You know what I'm saying? Like they didn't tell you, where they got their records from. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, the physical like, copies. Yeah, you got to go find... I'm not going to tell you where my place is that I get my... Because you're going to go back and get and get the same record. Like, nah, I'm not going to lead you there. You're going to have to figure that out on your own. So the key was not that the fact that you know this record. The fact is, is I got to it first and I found the sweet spot in that record that nobody else touched. And so when you hear it, you're going to rock out and be like, oh, I know this joint. Oh, he used it. This is crazy. I can't believe he, you know what I'm saying? But it was still popular. It's just that I got to it first. You know what I'm saying? So, but but I understand where you're coming from because now you don't have to do that. Now, you know, you could be more creative with the, but I still see, I still see the value. And even if I, even if I find a record that everybody knows, I may find a piece in that record that nobody ever used that sounds crazy. And you'll be like, I hear that all the time. Why didn't I use that? You know what I'm saying? Like there's still some, and that, and that comes from having an ear as well. Like you got to know, yeah, if I, if I, if I just take this little part right here and I ain't even got to do nothing to it, just loop it. And I get somebody to rhyme on this and make it sound crazy or we out. Yeah. It's just so weird now. It's so complicated. Like, I feel like it was a lot simpler because everyone was doing it. Whereas now it's like everyone wants their piece of the pie. Like coming back and going, obviously, you know, money is money and money talks. And that's why people want their piece of the pie. But it's like, there are so many songs where there are samples that can't be used because they don't, can't get the license, even though that sample will make the song a thousand times better. And then it hurts the artist. It like hurts everybody along it does. the train. It does. So it's, it does. it's weird. And then there are people who are anti-sampling because they think it's stealing. But then you can't, if you can't sample, everything is sampled because a drum is sampled. Like, where do you stop? Like, I'm not getting people in my recording session playing the drums. That's not an original sound. I'm taking the drum from somebody, somebody else. I'm just adding it. That I mean, to me, that's hip. That I don't think you can get around that and call it hip hop. You know what I'm saying? You can call it something else, but hip hop 
foundation of hip hop music is on sample. That's the foundation. You know what I mean? I agree with you. And that's why it's so big. It's because it is so amazing to hear all the ways you can change songs and take parts of songs and put them together to make a completely different sound. Like I've got a playlist of original songs. There Where did go. they take the sample? There you go. And then how did they use it? And that is so interesting. There you go. And and you and this is where morality sinks in and just doing the right thing. But what you do is you expose people to a record that had been either forgotten about or people have never heard that original record. And then you 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 know I reach out like I reach out to people. If I find something, I'll be like, boom, you know. You know, with your permission, I want to you. But but even if I didn't do it right then, if the thing starts to take off, I'll be like, hey, this record is popping off. We use your record. I would love for you to, you know what I'm saying, be a part of this. Then you give them exposure, you know what I mean, that they never would have gotten had you not sampled that record. Yeah, I 100% agree. Do you have producers or do you have people like beat makers that you look to to be like, you know, they're the ones who showed us really how to do it? Oh, D Dot was the first. I mean, D Dot, you know, like I said, he was the one that bought me the mark. He's the first that comes to mind, you know. Um, you know, just the things that he does with those records. I mean, but then there's people that I haven't worked with, like Premier, um, like Pete Rock, um, you know, that are masters at that. Q Tip, um, you know, Jay Diller, of course, the late great. Uh, but then there's a young producer that I that I work with now called his name is Ojiz. He did my last two albums and just him. And this dude is, he, he's, he's some, he's out of world. I, I don't even know, but because he's cut, he's a younger cat, but he's cut from our cloth. And so he's able to bridge the gap. He's able to, 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 to mix the old with the new, with the, you know what I mean? And, and his genius is just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. You know what I'm saying? Um, so those are the people that I've, that I've encountered, um, that, that that really provide me with with context with regards to you know uh, 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 creativity behind you know beat making and, and things like that you know what I mean because that to me they're the ones that do it in all of the ways that we have talked about whether it be find that little piece and just loop that or taking the sample sop chopping it up and all that other stuff you know they they cover the full gambit. And do you feel like they're undervalued? Like, I feel like producers are starting to get more clout, but still there is not like, uh, you know, within hip hop, if you're a big fan, you'll know the producer. But if you're a casual listener, you won't really have a true understanding of the producer and you'll know the artist, but you won't really know the producer as well. Do you think there is still some way to go before the producer starts getting a bit more recognition? Well, that's up to the what's the what's the word that I'm looking for? That's up to the way that the the project. I'll even I'm gonna you know bring it to the group because you may not be a group, but that's up to the way the project is presented. Like anytime me and OJs does anything, it's always Trey Lee and OJs. Always Trey Lee and o, like I don't even mention my name without mentioning his name. You know what I'm saying? So that's the way when you sit down and you collaborate with a producer. Um, and it's a little tougher when it's a collaborate. I mean, when it's a um, when it's a, when you have a a, a a medley 
of producers, if you will, uh, on one album. But when you do a project with one producer solely, it's all about the way you roll it out, the way that you attach the producer's name. Like again, and you know, he, he, he you know, by, by design, he puts his tag in every record. You know what I'm saying? Because he's not the one that's seen. Like he's not on the mic. So the only way, you know, without, you know, you seeing him in the video or without me mentioning him in, let's say, the, the, the subtext uh, is by putting a tag in that particular track that tells you this is that particular producer. But, you know, when we roll things out, man, it's always Tracy Lee OJs, Tracy Lee OJs. So that's how you're able to get give the proper light to the producer. Unless you already know like Premier, you know what I'm saying? So. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think the challenge is when you've got an album and you've got, you know, eight tracks and eight different producers. And then, you know, you can't unless you want to put them as a feature within the track. It just depends what you want to do, but yeah, the tag is so important. Like, you know, now especially you can hear it more and more. It's more and more prevalent and I love the tag because they come up with interesting ways to do it. Like it's just fun. Um yeah, it's just it's just really really cool to me that the way they can integrate it into the sound and then you've got like my personal favorite producer of all time dj premiere um i'm not the only one i cannot be the only one but he's got such a unique sound that you that you can hear his you know it you know you know most times you know it's him because he's the only one that chops things the way that he does you know what i mean what i love is fake he's got so many fake outs like he starts yeah. the beat and then he changes it. He'll throw in the scratches. And you also know he's going to sample an artist with for a hook. And I love the way he does hooks is he uses, you know, Jay-Z. He uses all these different and he takes songs. Again, it's the art of taking a song that you recognize and chopping it up in a way that you're like, I know that artist and I know the song, but I would never have used that in that way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. That actually worked quite well transitioning. I bring up Jay Z, and you actually were the tour DJ, and you were went around with Jay Z as well. So, how was that experience? Well, actually, it was a friend of mine, a real good friend of mine, uh, uh, Young Guru, who's the tour DJ for Jay Z, and me and Young Guru uh, both went to Howard University, and um, Guru engineered uh, many records for me. But his transition over to Jay Z was, you know, being you know, uh, the engineer on my second album that never that was never released. He was actually engineering that project and then got the call uh, to do projects with other people. And one of them was Jay-Z and then Jay-Z found an affinity for, for Ghoul and they've been rocking together since, I don't know, maybe 2002, one, two, something like that. But uh, but that wasn't me. That was that was my my, my brother, my brother, uh, young Ghoul. So did you ever meet Jay-Z or have you heard stories about Jay-Z? How was that? Yeah, nah. I mean, the night that me and Big did the record, did uh, Keep Your Hands High, Jay was in the in the studio. Oh, really? Uh, when I walked in, him and Big was talking. And so that was the first time I actually met Jay. But, but, but yeah, they were talking. And I came in and we were introduced. And actually, he was working on the streets and watching at another... And we were both in Premier Studio, by the way, D&D. And so he was working in another room, you know what I'm saying, from my understanding. Uh, but nah, me, me, I mean, you know, like I said, th- these are my contemporaries. So, you know, around the time that I was out, you know, Jay was Jay was bubbling, you know what I'm saying? More than bubbling, Jay was doing his thing. 
And so we would cross paths, you know, several times, you know. And then when Goose started working with him, you know, because Goose, my guy, you know, I would go up the baseline. And, you know, of course, that's the whole rock. That's Rockefeller headquarters, you know, CJ all the time. You know what I mean? But but that was interesting that you asked that because that night that me and Big did the record, he was in there. You know what I'm saying? So you talk about this like, oh, they were my contemporaries and like, you know, we were working together. And for me as a fan, I'm like, I can't even imagine it. Like I can't <laughs> even, it's just like, it's at the, at the level where it's like, it's like a dream. You know what I mean? Like you talk about it and I'm picturing it. I'm trying to put my myself in the spot. And like, I, I'm not sure I would even be able to talk. I'm sure I would, would just have to be like, you guys are going to have to give me like 10 minutes. You guys keep doing, I'm just going to sit in the corner and listen. And then eventually I'll, I'll figure out a way to open my mouth. But it's, it's just that feeling. And I'm sure I'm not the only one listening to a, to a story like this going uh, speechless. <laughs> well, I mean, and then there's, you know, like being an MC, man, there's a certain, there's a bit of a, a, a vibrato that you, that I think that you should have. Um, so when you start talking about back then, you start talking about, you know, cats that are doing what you do and you feel like you do it, you do it better than them. It's like you don't you don't look at them in awe. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I see you. You know what I'm saying? You trying to do this record. I, I, you think you hot. I think I'm hot. You know what I'm saying? Let's prove it. That's that's the mochismo. You know what I'm saying? That's, you know, so. You know, I, even with Big, when I did the record with Big, I knew Big was fired. Big was on the top of the food chain at the time. But I felt like he wasn't better than me. And just like he said, he thought I wasn't better than him. But that was what you, to me, that's what you need as an MC. So, you know, everybody during that time period felt like they can get on the record with anybody. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, that's, that, that's the reason why, you know, I guess when I tell these stories, I don't have the same type of feeling that you may have because, you know, this, this is the business that we're in, you know what I'm saying? And at the same time, you know, I'm looking back, like, you know, this is after the legacy of big, this is after, you know, Jay-Z has become, you know, truly Jay-Z. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, it's like, now I see, I'm looking back. I'm going, yes. now I yes. know who they are now. I'm looking back and going, oh my God, that's amazing. But you're right. I mean, you know, I was listening to to Prodigy's book from Mob Deep and he was talking about growing up with Nas and mm -hmm. that competitive spirit. And that is at essence is like what hip hop is. It is, I'm going to deliver bars that are better than yours and I want to beat you on your track. And then that's the competition. So I like, I, if you said to me, yeah, I was in awe, it would, it would surprise me a little bit because you can't perform your best when you're in awe because you've got to have that competitive fire that's like, I know I can win this. That's a fact. And, and it makes for a better record. As long as you keep it in context and not, you know, get personal with it, you know what I'm saying, and understand what the, what the, what the, the, the mission at, at hand is and what the task is. But then, you know, once you get the assignment, now it's time to, okay, I got to make myself, you know, we want to make a great record, but at the same time, from an ego perspective, I got to make myself sound better than you with this concept. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. And at the same time, you want to establish a continued relationship because absolutely every opportunity is like, I could work with this person again. And obviously Biggie passed away young. Uh, so, but, you know, you established. It was, it was never, it was never personal. 
at least not from my perspective. But when we got on records back then, it was never, it was never personal. It was always, you know, on the mic, on the mic. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. So that that was the beautiful thing about it. And how did you feel about diss tracks? Speaking of personal, because I I I personally love listening to diss tracks. It's just it's just part of the culture that I'm like, it's interesting to me because it's just like, how can I put you down? But at the same time, I know it's not good because it, it's infighting. It's like when you see the the people who love the same thing fight about it. It's like almost like an unhappy marriage in a weird way where it's like you're just fighting about the, the things that you love. But how do you feel about it? I used to I used to like it. You know what I'm saying? I used to like it. I used to get into it. I mean, we go all the way back to the Kumo DLL battles and you know, and then later on the, 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 the cannabis LL battles, you know, then we get to Jay and Nas and then we, I used to like it, but now it's like, I think I'm at a stage in my career where, you know, to me, that's, that's a moment, but the, that moment doesn't really last that long, at least not longer than a hot, a hot joint, a hot record. Like I'm more interested in a hot record because a hot record is everlasting. You know what I mean? Um, and then that provides, um, you know, uh, the foundation for a lot of things. It provides a lot, a, a foundation for how people view you as an artist. It could be lucrative if you got one. If you got one, you can live off of one forever. You see what I'm saying? Um, so I'm, I'm more interested in, in, in hot records. This records. At this stage, like I said, I you know I'm not gonna sit up here and 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 claim that I'm holier than thou and never liked this records. I used to love this records, but I think now I I I wouldn't want to waste my time doing a this record. You see what I'm saying? Um, you know. So, but I mean, I I can see how it could be a form of entertainment. You dig? Yeah, it's it's just like you know reality TV. It's like a bit of drama. Yeah, and, yeah. It's, that's, it's, that's it's, great. It's a, that's a great explanation. That's a great explanation. Absolutely. Because you just see a little bit of the background of like the artist that you like and you're like, oh, they're fighting. And you yeah, just, just yeah, back. It's yeah. like eating popcorn. You just watch them fight. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. And where are you at? Where are you at now? Obviously, you're 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 back. You're 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 really active again in terms of producing music. You've got your own label. You're you're making a lot of moves. Where are you at at the moment and what's the future hold obviously coming out of COVID and we're seeing the resurgence of society coming back to, you know, hopefully more of a, a normal landscape. Um, well, right now we, we're on the hills of, uh, we have released a, an album at the end of 2020 going into 21 called glory, um, which is on uh, my website, Tracy Lee music, T R A C E Y L E E music.com. And it's also on all streaming platforms where, you know, in the middle of COVID, you know, actually, it was it was an album that I wrote in two months, which I've never done before. Um, really speaking about the year 2020 and and the things that we endured here in America uh, and all over the world were not only COVID but social injustice as well. Uh, and so, and we put it in book form, and that's the reason why we 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 created a, a manuscript, a book to go right along with it to accompany the album. Um, it's a 12 track uh, album. Uh, that 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 goes in in, in, in sequential order, uh, giving you a a you know a peek into the events of what occurred throughout the year, and going from really the darkness into the light, coming to some solutions. Uh, how do we move forward? 
and so we've been pushing that actively. Uh, today's the 31st. This uh, we, we, we dropped it independently on the 31st and then put it on streaming platforms later in the year. Uh, and so there's a five-part marketing tool that we, we're doing with that. There's the music, which is the album. There's the merch, which I don't have on, but, you know, if you go to my website, we have the Glory merch. There's the manuscript, which is the book. There's the movie, which we shot 12 videos, for, you know, basically a video for each song. And then there's the monologue, which is the live performance. And so that's what we've been pushing over the last 12 months, and we will continue to push now. But in addition to that, you know, we, we drop, you know, little you know, not little, but music in between that has nothing to do with that particular album. Like I just dropped something today for the summertime called Butter Soft, which was actually produced by this cat named Jermaine Hardsoul, who's also singing on the hook. And, you know, that's 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 just to take the, the, the edge off, you know, a little lighter moment, you know what I'm saying? You know, for you to have your cookouts, you know what I mean? If, if, if you're outside, if you're back going to clubs, you know what I'm saying? And you meet a nice woman that you want to, you know, have a conversation with, you know, that's that type of record. You know what I mean? Have a little drink, blah, blah, blah. You know, again, to show some versatility as well. And you can get that on TraceyLeeMusic.com as well as all streaming platforms as well. Uh, but that's what we're, we're, what we're pushing right now, man. And and everything is is really falling into place, uh, you know, quite nicely with regards to how we're marketing and setting up all of these records. So remember, TraceyLeeMusic.com. For everything, and then you, like I said, you can go to all streaming platforms for Glory the album, as well as the new single Butter Soft. Well, I was going to ask you about the manuscript. Is that is there like things added in between, or is it just the the bars? What's the structure of because well, that's really interesting to me. Well, in, inside of the book is, is twelve chapters. Like there's a chapter that represents each song, and not only do we have the lyrics for all of the songs, but then we also have photography that is attached to it, you know. Um, Young Guru, who I told, who we talked about earlier, who's the DJ and engineer for Jay-Z, he's a photographer as well. He uh, uh, contributed uh, some photography, as well as OJs who produced the album, Glory, as well as my man, Mark Samuel. But we have photography in the book, as well as uh, uh, journal entries. And the journal entries are basically giving you a some insight as to what I was thinking about with regards to each song, you know, where I was in that particular state, how it relates to, you know, my, my, my particular situation, as well as does it relate to anything that you're going through? And it's used in a therapeutic manner, you know, because I feel like as a writer, you know, uh, I use the music as therapy. I use the writing as therapy. And I know, you know, in, in these times, in these COVID times, that, you know, whether you're still on lockdown or you haven't adjusted after a year and a half or two years, there are going to be some people that need people to talk to. There's going to be some mental healing that goes on. You know what I mean? Um, these are uncharted waters. We've never lived, been through anything like this. So, you know, I tried to use the journal entries as, as, as a bit of therapy, not for myself, but for anybody else that's reading it that's going through the same things so they can get some type of insight of what they may be thinking and just never really had the outlet to be able to express themselves. So that's what glory is about. And essentially that's what the album is about as well. You know? Well, I think that's a, a really impressive thing to do. And 
I'm a big fan of, you know, adding depth to songs because sometimes you'll understand the song, but you won't understand the mindset behind the song and also having the lyrics with you so that you can actually read the lyrics along with the track. Like if I'm going to review tracks or I'm reviewing an album, I'm, I'm just going to listen to it at first, get the feeling. And then when I'm comfortable with it, I'm going to go and read the lyrics as well so that I can actually get a true understanding of the rhyme schemes. Cause there's, you're going to miss always every song you're going to miss, you're going to miss a bar. You're going to miss wordplay. You're going to miss, Oh, this connects back up to there. And I didn't see that when I was listening, but now that I'm reading it, I can see it. And, and now I can actually see the words and that part of it is underrated. I think so. If you want to get a true understanding, definitely check out lyrics of any any album but glory especially uh my man tracy lee but uh this leads perfectly into the last question that i have it's the only question that i ever plan on this podcast is probably the hardest one but if you had to recommend one album doesn't have to be hip-hop that everybody should listen to at least once to get an appreciation of obviously can't be your own what would it be i'm gonna say that's that's a hard one but I'm going to say Inner Visions by Stevie Wonder. Ooh, we haven't heard Stevie Wonder yet. Huh? No one said Stevie Wonder yet. You're the first Inner one. Visions, Inner Visions by Stevie Wonder. If you want to listen to music, poetry, lyricism, consciousness, depth, all in one, Inner Visions is your album. I love that. I love when hip hop artists recommend an album that is not hip hop. I just love that because it just shows that there is more than just listening to hip hop. All these other genres play a part into it, but there you go. Stevie wonder. I know I personally haven't listened to it. So I know I got to listen to it. So, uh, definitely check it out. And, you know, Tracy, I appreciate you coming on the show as, as I said, uh, check out tracyleemusic.com. I think I got that right. Check out the album Glory. Check him out on YouTube. There's a bunch of music videos. Um, he's done a lot of work and you'll be able to see his career. And it's a it's an absolute pleasure for me to be able to speak to someone like you who's had such a long journey and and who has, you know, from from my perspective, is is almost blessed in a way that you see literally step by step what happened and and I was able to get a little bit of insight into uh, the way hip hop plays in your life and the influence it has on others as well. Nah, thank you for having me, man. This was a great conversation, man. And I learned some things as well, man. So I appreciate you. Appreciate you from the land down under. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, now we just got to hope for borders to open up and then you can come and do a tour. Oh, and then, I would love And then love uh, we can do this in person because uh, it, as much as I love Zoom, it's not the same as, you know, doing it face to face. No doubt, man. Soon come, soon come, man. Thanks for listening to the show. Please like and subscribe and follow me on Instagram at the underscore hip hop hustle for upcoming podcast news. Also, don't forget to check out my Patreon under hip hop hustle for exclusive content and to help support the show. Bye for now.